The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the securities discussed. For more information, head over to investmart.com.au. Welcome to this week's edition of Skin in the Game. I'm your host, Nathan Bell, Senior Portfolio Manager here at Investmart slash Intelligent Investor. And welcome back to my colleague, Alex Hughes, our small cap manager. Welcome, Alex. G'day, Nath. Did you enjoy two weeks off? It was really good. However, I tuned into the podcast and I was shocked <laughs> to hear that our status as the second best podcast at Investmart is in question. I thought, how rude to invite a guest and then to start claiming he's the second best podcast in the Investmart uh, household. Yeah, there's a lot of competition, so I think we, we need to step it up today. <laughs> All right. Well, the good thing is we've got heaps of questions, and I'm glad you're here because I've hardly heard, heard of uh, most of these companies. So the first one is a company called Live Tiles. Uh, it's a question from Dave, and he's basically just asking, you've seen a couple of valuations, poles apart from sell-side analysts. Uh, do you have a view on the stock? Yeah, so LiveTiles is a software business. They make application software that's used on Microsoft SharePoint. And what it does is it allows organizations to have essentially a dashboard um, that helps them to share information and provide sort of like a central meeting place for an organization. Now, my first question with software companies is always, is this a product or is it a platform? And I think in, in this case, it's a product. And that has important competitive implications. So... You know, it's actually growing really quickly. They've identified a need that hasn't been serviced and, and they've got some great growth out of it. Um, but I think they need to constantly out-innovate competitors and it's not a platform which strengthens as more users use it over time. So that that makes it hard um, to value the business when you, you're not aware or you don't have a good understanding of how the competitive dynamics might evolve. And in the case of Live Tolls, it's actually on 20 times sales at the moment, so growing really quickly. I know they've got an annual, annualised recurring revenue target of 100 million in, I think, in about two and a bit years, which is about a threefold increase from where they're at now. So they're, they're obviously really confident. Um, they've got some traction there, but I struggle to value it in, in a, at a 20 times sales price target. Um, it's just too difficult for me. Do you know if it competes against Atlassian at all? No, no, I don't think it's in that space. I think Atlassian is more developer tools that help developers work on projects and things, um, where this is for any business essentially just to help their employees collaborate. So um, quite different, but I mean, if you want to pay a 20 times sales price tag, I'd, I'd look at WiseTech before looking at LiveTiles. What's the name of that company again? Why, oh, WiseTech. WiseTech, yeah. Okay. Um, so Christian, uh, as always, a number of uh, things to look at. Uh, we'll go through uh, three stocks and then uh, some broader, uh, a broader question on LICs, which is uh, relevant at the moment given some of the discounts on them. Um, the first is, have we got a view on Challenger Financial? Uh, I've, I'm not an expert on this company. I, I never followed it too closely, although I occasionally look at their quarterly reports because they're global and domestic fund managers. Uh, I think it's difficult looking at any fund manager at the moment. I think just the fees are coming down and uh, anyone who's followed Investmart knows that I think we've got the lowest fees for ETFs um, in the industry uh, where we charge, you could have a million dollars and only get charged, I think it's $451. Um, so I think that's a real impediment to buying fund managers these days. You need to be really careful about that, uh, particularly if there's not a big uh, CEO uh, or investor that people really love to follow. Uh, I think what you've seen in Platinum is there's been a lot of love for Kia Nielsen over the years, and that's got the business to $26 billion. 
We've seen the same thing at Magellan where uh, intelligent, experienced people tell me that at the age of 50 they still walk in hearing presentations he's done and just can't help but give him money. Um, that's not what I think when I hear his voice, but um, but he's in now in control of $70 billion. So it just shows you when there's that trust factor and someone's got the runs on the board, just how much money can flow in. And I know Ashok Jacob's got a fairly good name, but I don't think the returns on most of the funds that I've seen at, um, at Challenger um, have been that great for a while. And the other part of the business is the uh, annuity business and I think they are the sole provider of annuities in Australia which is a, a nice niche uh, and again I'm not an expert on this stuff but just what I've noticed abroad particularly in the states over the last 10 years is that any company that's been supplying these types of instruments in a low interest rate world have really struggled to offer the sort of returns that people are willing to pay for these things. Yeah, that's right. There's, there's actually a great quote out there by Charlie Munger and he, he talks about the Japanese life insurance companies and I think it was in the 90s, they all went out of business because they promised 3% returns to people and then they couldn't actually meet that. They couldn't actually earn more than 3% to satisfy that and make a profit. So it's really difficult in a decreasing interest rate world for these types of businesses. And, and for me, it's just too complicated as well. I struggle to get my head around it. I was going to say, there's a big black box nature about these vehicles because you don't know often what they're invested in uh, until it's too late. And uh, it was interesting you brought up the Japanese companies because I think Challenge is making a little bit of a song and dance at the moment. They've attracted some Japanese funds. Oh, is that right? <laughs> as, as our interest rates approach theirs. Right. Um, so to me, that wasn't a great sign um, if, if, if um, only the Japanese are interested. But uh, it's definitely one to keep a watch on, though, because I don't think the business is going anywhere and I think there is a price for it. The second one is ARQ. So this is the old Melbourne IT business, so domain names. You got a view on this, Alex? Yeah, I think this is a mediocre IT business, so it's not on my radar. So they did well initially selling domain names, as you mentioned, um, but they've sold a lot of businesses over the years and they've made a number of acquisitions and, and the business is really different and they provide digital solutions now to businesses, um, small and large, um, but I struggle to see a, a good business here um, and so my interest wanes as a result. I haven't uh, done the detail work on this, but I believe some of those acquisitions blew up uh, I think I guess is that what you're saying? They sold off some of those and they just went back to essentially the domain name business. Exactly, yeah. And it's always difficult for a corporate business that sells a business line and then is forced to recreate a revenue stream. You know, you know, good businesses don't just pop up overnight. And if there's no defined strategy there, I think it's hard just to buy another business and have mm. a good business going mm. forward as a result. And mm. actually, just as a an extra um, note on Scuttlebutt, I, I met with a director. Um, I won't name names um, recently, but I was really underwhelmed. Um, so that's just another thing that's keeping me away. Uh, I can't remember, I said this before, but I remember Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett said they went to meet a manager of a business and they walked away mortified by this guy and the share price went up 10 times and they said, <laughs> we're going to stop talking to people. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, for me, I mean, show me the roadmap with this business. How is this business going to be 10 times bigger over time? I just can't see it. Yeah, no, I think that's spot on. Uh, the next one is is CDM. I actually haven't looked up this company's name. It's Cadence, the LIC. Okay, perfect. So this is our segue into uh, LIC more generally. Um, can you please explain the difference between pre and post tax on the NTA for these LIC vehicles? Sure, yeah. So um, I'll start with pre-tax because that's the easiest. So that essentially just looks at all of the shares that this listed investment company all the shares that they hold, um, values that based on the market price at, a, at the given date, um, and then deducts any liabilities, and that's um, 
the NTA is the sum of those two. Um, Post-tax is a little bit different. Um, that assumes that the shares are sold at the market price and the tax is paid on those shares. Um, so that may be different to the pre-tax NTA. Um, for long-standing LICs that have been in business for a long time, they might have really strong capital gains there and, and so there might be a, a little bit of tax that they need to pay on that and so you might see a discrepancy between the pre- and post-tax NTA. Um, if you want to read more about this, I'd, I'd suggest you look at Intelligent Investor. They've written lots of good articles on the subject. Yeah, I think the important thing is, though, is not to go and look at that post-tax NTA and just assume that they're going to pay all the tax on those vehicles because all those investments, because an LIC like um, AF, is AFIC. Yeah, AFIC and Argo and, and, and long holders like that. Yeah, they're not going to sell the shares, so they're going to That's enjoy right. that, that capital gain benefit or the tax benefit for a long time. So I think you just want to get um, probably a good way is maybe just to look over the recent years and trying to figure out from the accounts and see what tax actually has been paid might give you a good... Um, idea of the future level. Yeah. Uh, there's been uh, quite a lot of discussion lately about uh, LICs trading below NTA. So perhaps your thoughts on how you would go about choosing to invest in an LIC uh, trading below net tangible assets. Would you look at the size of the discount, the composition of the holdings, so the quality of the individual stocks, or the track record of the manager, or would you think about taking a basket approach? So a lot of questions there. Yeah, I wouldn't look at the discount to NTA first. I'd, I'd start with the manager. So I'd, I'd want to be comfortable with their philosophy, with their expertise, with their track record. You know, is this a manager that I want to partner with for the long term? I think that's the most important point and you need to get comfortable with that first. Then I'd probably consider costs. So LICs have a management expense. Generally, the larger the LIC, the lower that is relative to the amount of capital that they manage. Um, so that's an important consideration because that will ultimately influence your long-term compounding returns. And then after all of that, then I'd consider the, the, the discount to NTA. Yeah, the fees can be really high within these vehicles just because they're LICs doesn't mean they don't have large fees. And that's one of the reasons why fund managers like to have them. You've got a permanent source of capital that's not going anywhere and you've got normal high retail fees on there. It's not like you've got a wholesale investor in there paying 40 bips or something, exactly basis right. points. I always remember uh, when I, very early on in my career, Intelligent Investor, Platinum, um, International Platinum, the LIC, tr used to trade at this enormous premium. It was like 40 or 50%. Um, so first of all, that took no account of the fees that you're paying hmm. because with an LIC, you don't want to be paying a full dollar for, let's say, the NTA or the portfolio's value because you've got to pay fees on that. So you've got to adjust for that first. But then you're basically making a decision that the, the manager is going to perform so well that within you know a couple of years or a few years that somehow they're going to produce 20%, 25% returns to justify today's price. Like it was just crazy. It didn't make any sense. And uh, eventually people woke up and realised what they were doing. Um, but it ab absolutely makes no sense to be paying a big premium um, for these vehicles, but particularly for the funds with high, with high fees. Hi guys, just recently got into the podcast, getting the game and appreciate the views. Uh, this is from Euclid. I've been trawling through trying to find infrastructure stocks that are developing scale and fit with global growth themes. Came across a stock with the ticker NEU, as in new, new energy, energy solar, a developer and generator uh, and infrastructure of pure play solar energy with long-term contracts. Predominantly a US solar project with a couple of recent acquisitions in Australia, but with global aspirations. 
looks like they're about to take off and appreciate your preliminary views on the stock. It's got, uh, I think Euclid should be a broker. <laughs> yeah, it was a great pitch. Um, hi, Euclid. Um, I don't have much of, uh, of a view on this business. Um, it's not really my game. Uh, this, I had a quick look at it. It looks to be a reasonably capital-intensive business, quite complex as well. They own a number of assets in the States um, in varying proportions with different accounting policies attached to those. Um, there's lots of hedging in place as well, so it's the accounts are really confusing, um, and this this generally isn't my game. Now, you know, maybe this is going to have a, a a strong growth in the future as you know the demand for solar rises and so on. Um, you know, but again, it's just not my game, so I can't really add much to that. Yeah, I think one thing I try to do if something is complicated, it usually puts me off mostly anyway. But um, Complication is a double-edged sword. Sometimes it means if you're prepared to do the work, uh, because most people aren't, you can find extraordinary value in something that's complicated, whether it's a complicated ownership structure or what have you. But on the other side, more complication generally means to me more risk. And markets love simple stories, which is why you're seeing the Wisetex and Altiums, just nice and clean, balance sheets, good free cash flow, um, you know, clear growth, you know, great spot in the market. Um, but with companies like this, particularly when I see companies that, for, that are doing something interesting or new, I try to find other companies listed somewhere else that might be doing the same thing. I have no idea if there are other companies doing the same thing as, uh, as New Energy Solar, but um, it always makes me feel a bit better if I know the business model has been proven to work elsewhere rather than being the guinea pig essentially to be the first to see whether it does work. There is a general principle that I, I can add to that, though. Um, if you look at Retail Foo Group, which is blowing up in front of our eyes, it's probably going to go broke at some point in the future. Um, the problem with their business was that they continually acquired new brands. So they started with Donut King, and then they added Michelle's Patisserie, and then um, Gloria Jeans, and a number of pizza brands as well. But over time, that became a more complex business, and it was harder to manage. You know, all the individual brands had particular needs, and it became harder to cater to all of those needs as there were more brands. Um, so as the business scaled, it became harder to manage. Now, I think when you're looking at growth, you want to ask yourself, as, as in, in the context of this new energy solar business, as more and more projects are added, does it become easier to manage or does it become harder? Um, I'm not sure. So maybe that's a question you can ask of this investment. I'm glad you brought up Retail Food Group because I remember we got asked all the time um, when I was an intelligent investor because the share price just kept going up and I just couldn't see another company that had succeeded with this business model anywhere else in the world. And it was just amazing how long it, it held up for. But just it's a great lesson. Like when the crash came, uh, it basically went from you know 6 or $7 to effectively zero in the blink of an eye. Like yeah. you just don't get a chance to get out of these situations. So you, you really need to be careful. You understand what you what you own. Yeah, there's, there's companies like Yum Brands, but they only have a handful of brands, not not dozens <laughs> like, you know. Absolutely, with all the resources with. in the world and one of the uh, biggest brands in the world. Yeah. Hi, guys. Uh, this is from Andy. Love the podcast. A couple of small cap stocks I'm interested in. Uh, Baby Bunting and Kena Securities uh, would be interested in your thoughts. Uh, I'm completely biased against baby bunting. <laughs> I know the competitive landscape for this business has really come into its favour over the last two years with a lot of independence going broke. Yep. My wife works in the industry and used to work at baby bunting and I've seen what goes on on the inside there. And uh, it was funny, I was talking to uh, my old boss a little while back ab about it and um, and basically said, yeah, if you saw the inside of every business you own, you'd probably walk away with the same yeah. feeling. So it's best yeah, actually sometimes point. not to see what's going on. So what were they doing? Were they treating their staff poorly or mm. 
uh, it was just a really, really tough environment. Um, right. You know, the, particularly when it listed, you saw the big investors in the business sold out. So to me, that was a, a bad thing anyway. Uh, and two, I've just seen the struggle they have to get good managers in there. Uh, I don't think they treated their staff very nicely. And they work in a big warehouse uh, with mostly women working on the floor, just getting sworn at all day. Like, it's just not a nice thing to see. And it's hardly the sort of environment uh, where you feel like people are, are appreciated. Wow. Okay, well, that's really important scuttlebutt there. I mean, I'll, I'll frame the bull case just so um, our listeners can be aware of it. So there were a number of competitors that failed, and so now Baby Bunting has 52 stores in Australia, and its its nearest competitor has three. So it has an enormous scale advantage. It's got far better buying power, and that will be an important, enduring advantage for them. Um, there is a threat with online here, Um probably longer term at the moment Amazon doesn't really do anything in the baby space and it's given baby bunting a chance to preemptively build a business there um, so that's important um, my concern with the business though is that the store rollout profile isn't very large I think they've got 52 stores now and they think they can have 80 so you know that's a 50% uplift which might take them a few years to achieve and then you've got a mature you know low growth business so I think retailing is always a really difficult business and you only want to own retailers when they've got a large store rollout profile ahead and, and that's why the only retailer that um, we own is LaVisa because they've got the opportunity to increase their store network several fold. Um, but in saying that, um, those competitors that failed um, generated about $130 million of sales and so if Baby Bunting captures that, I think that's about a 30% uplift. So you could see some some good growth in the near term, but um, question marks over the long term there. Yeah, I agree. The rollout doesn't make a lot of sense to me because I feel like they're more like an Ikea. Like each city actually doesn't need many of them. You know, maybe one, two, three max in the big cities because they're such big warehouses. Uh, if you have them anywhere near each other, all you do is cannibalise the other store. And, and that's actually why I think a lot of these independents went broke. Uh, is because they were situated too close to each other and you just don't need a lot of these stores. Yeah, that's right. I wonder too about the online channels that have helped us move around secondhand goods more efficiently. You know, Facebook and Gumtree and Co. And, you know, you buy all the stuff and you've got a couple of children and then, you know, you, you no longer need it and that can then be passed on to the next person. So I think that's probably also had an impact as well. All right, for anyone um, around Bondi Junction, my wife works at Baby Village, so if you go in there and tell her you listen to Nathan's podcast, she might give you a discount. Um, second company was Keener Securities, any of you? Um, yes, yeah, so this is a, a bank in Papua New Guinea. Um, do I need to continue? <laughs> not for me. Yeah, so it's not on my radar at all. Too much risk for me. You know, you've got um, political risk, economic risk, um, forex risk. And, you know, banking is difficult to start with, but to do it in Papua New Guinea just increases the risks. Um, so, yeah, no interest from me. Yeah, there's a couple of stocks around, um, not so Papua New Guinea, but around Indonesia where uh, things like cell tower companies, which I got quite excited about because they just don't trade on the same valuations that the US comparables trade at. And they've been absolutely supersonic uh, stocks for the last 10 or 15 years. But every time I go there, you start looking through the shareholder lists and there's some government there and, and then uh, you just see what's happened in the past about assets getting stolen and you, know, you just lose interest pretty quick. Yeah. Okay, so I've got a quick one here uh, from Mark. Uh, what do you think of Sonic Healthcare's recent US acquisition? So there's a couple of things I like and a couple of things that I'm quite sceptical about. Uh, the one thing I did like was that the company raised 
uh, fresh equity from shareholders to invest in it. Uh, I don't generally like seeing companies leverage the, the balance sheet, particularly at this end of the cycle, even though Sonic's a fairly predictable business uh, with its pathology. Uh, it's not a cyclical business like a retailer. So I like that. Uh, it, it does give them a bit more, uh, I guess, a platform in the US, which has been seems to be in, having been looking to uh, looking to acquire for a while. Uh, so it does imp potentially improve the economics over there. And uh, there's another thing about the revenues aren't particularly tied to regulations. Uh, so that's a nice way of saying is that there's less regulatory risk in terms of pricing for that particular business. So I guess some small ticks with that type of stuff. Uh, the one thing to remember with this is about $750 million uh, investment and Sonic's market cap at the moment is around $12 billion. So even if it didn't work out very good, it's not going to destroy the company or anything like that. So uh, it's always important to keep this in focus. Although often what happens, even though it's a fairly small acquisition and it goes poorly, it tends to take up a whole heap of management time and can distract them from their good businesses, which ends up uh, sending the share price down and earnings down for a short period until uh, they get rid of the festering problem and get refocused on what they should have been in the first place. Uh, what I don't like about it is my understanding is that the what they've actually bought is uh, not very old anyway. It was actually the accumulation of four different businesses put together or stitched together over the last uh, 12 or 18 months. So I don't. So my concern is they're buying something that isn't uh, all nicely tied together, and it could be a bit problematic trying to pull it all together. So in a sense, it's not like they've bought one business. It might actually be the sense they've bought four disparate businesses, which is much more complicated from a management perspective. Uh, and the other thing is. Um, you know, they've paid, I think it was nine and a half times EBITDA, EV to EBITDA, which sounds like a fairly attractive multiple in the pathology space. Uh, but in saying that, you don't really know what you've bought with these businesses. There's, there's not a lot of detail provided by the company. Uh, and it just looks like it's just going to fit in like a nice jigsaw puzzle and it's going to, the pieces are going to fit perfectly. But um, these things rarely do. And I, I think if you've given how... Uh, the company's talking about how widely geographically it, uh, it's ex exposed, which is a nice thing to have if you're sort of in different markets and gives you a bit of national scale perhaps. Um, but the other problem is it also makes the business more complicated. So uh, the jury's out. We'll see what happens. But I don't have big expectations for this acquisition. Um, but at least it's not going to ruin the company if things don't work out as well as they'd hoped. Yeah, I'd say the logic is sound though, because scale is important. You, you know, you want to have a strong representation in an area, because then you get the efficiencies from that. But I agree, you know, execution risk is certainly there. No, I think you're spot on. It is a scale business. It's it's the lowest cost win today, and I was actually quite surprised. I didn't realise how many markets Sonic Healthcare is the number one in. Uh, for like a twelve billion dollar business, sounds pretty big, but for having the number one. Uh, market position in a bunch of European companies plus Australia and now being the third largest in the US in a market where I think they said uh, the largest pl the largest player in the US market's got no more than 5% of the market which uh, makes me think that potentially there's a lot more acquisitions to come and I think I expect that's what management are looking for is actually to um, become the largest player in the US and this is just part of that progress. Yeah, you'd almost want them to not focus on getting diversity geographically in, in the US but just really focus on where they are strong now and build that out. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so 
Hi guys, great to hear the second best podcast uh, in Vestmart. Just have a question about Talisman Mining. I'm, I'm going to redo this all out because there's a couple of different aspects to it. They recently returned 30% of the capital to shareholders as a result of the sale of an asset. As a result, they received praise from some commentators regarding looking after their shareholders, in brackets. However, given the share price seemed to promptly drop, drop by the amount of the capital return, not sure why that is especially praiseworthy. I may be misunderstanding this, but I'm thinking the return effectively generates income to shareholders that they now pay tax on at their marginal rate and at a time not of their choosing, versus a sale of the shares to reach the same result, in brackets, with 50% reduction in capital gain, at a time which the shareholder could choose and therefore most likely is more tax effective. Any thoughts would be greatly appreciated. Thanks, Chris. Sure. So I guess the first part of that is that if a company distributes 30% of its capital, the share price will fall by 30%. Um, that's just simple mathematics. Um, you know, the cash was once in the company and now it's in your hand. So um, nothing's changed economically, or not economically, but um, mathematically. Um, you have the money. Um, so there's nothing to be worried about there. Um, I think the, the way the company presented it is it's really the bird in the hand argument. So mining companies have a really bad track record of hanging on to profits and then pouring it back into the ground and ultimately squandering that money. So the fact that they've given the money back to shareholders um, gives them some reward from what the company's done in the past. It prevents any bad capital allocation in the future. Um, and the, the tax implications, so capital returns, you, you don't... Um, necessarily pay tax on that immediately. That will be deducted from your cost base. Um, so you'll, that will be that will influence the capital gains that you'll pay when you ultimately sell those shares. So there'll be no tax implications immediately, um, but there will be once you sell those shares. Usually the companies, when they have a big capital return like that, would give you a bunch of information to know what sort of taxation consequences to be looking at. Um, some, I'd be, it's actually... Uh, quite rare that any company like this would return so much money to shareholders so actually it is potentially a very good thing uh, it's certainly unusual uh, but normally the company when it does something of this size you expect them to give a little bit of help to shareholders about what those taxation consequences were okay so we've got uh, an internal question here from mitch uh, i see quite a few respective small cap funds with noni b in their top holdings list have you looked into it uh, or are people just picking around for the next city chic or specialty fashion house, I think a specialty fashion group. Uh, it's still trading on a relatively low PE of 13 compared to City Chic at 18 and Premier Investments at 21. Yeah, I think what investors are excited about here is the management team. So um, Nonny B was originally run by the founding family um, and a, a group of guys came in and bought the um, a majority stake in the business from them and really turned that business around and they've executed really well. Um, and so investors are confident in that, that they will continue to do so with the new specialty fashion assets that they've acquired. So specialty fashion has spun off um, all of their dud brands like Katie's and Miller's and Autograph and things. Um, and so Noni B now owns them and they've got a, um, a big turnaround opportunity there. Um, and I think investors are backing them to do that. So um, I think that's why other funds are excited about it. Um, for me, retail is not a, something I spend a lot of time on. As I said earlier, it's a pretty average business at the best of times. Mm. Um, but in saying that, the, man the management here is a great track record. Yeah, I mean, hats off to the, the guys that turn this business around because I find it as an investor extraordinarily difficult to pick a turnaround for a retail business. Yeah. And I've seen so many fail. Especially in women's fashion as well, which we're just not close to, to start with. So we're always going to be behind the eight ball. And not, not an area where I thought there would have been a lot of value to be had either. Like I would have thought there were so many of them would just be so tough. Yeah. 
anyway, I guess it shows what experienced hands can do uh, with the right assets. Uh, Nathan, you talk a lot about quality, and Alex sounds like he's coming around to that as well. What are the key indicators of a quality business when you start looking at a business for the first time? What five or more core things do you look at before saying this is worth a bit more of my time? Do you want to answer that? I can go second if you like. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the first thing I'm looking for with any business is a track record of profitability. That's what I want to see. And I want to see a business that's endured. Uh, so a business like Aristocrat uh, through the GFC, I remember I was pretty lonely on that stock and my first recommendation, I still remember the exact price, was $6.76 and it was down from uh, $17.50 or higher. So I thought I well and truly had a margin of safety at this point thinking that it was just a cyclical downturn. Uh, but what happened is the company actually had um, some real internal problems where they hadn't invested in new games uh, for their new cabinet. Uh, a lot of the research and development turned out to not be real research and development it was spending. It was just taking old machines and fixing them up and sending them back out to the market again. So that's stuff that's you know, virtually impossible to pick up as an outside investor. And the share price ended up plumbing lows of $2.00. Uh, and since then, it's come back to, I think, up to $31 and is now around 25 But I always remember talking to uh, an, an old mentor of mine, uh, Intelligent Investor uh, members might remember Tony Shenner, and he just always talked about how durable this business was and just how many downturns and how many times management had actually done their best to destroy this business. And every time it had picked itself up off the canvas, I think it was like a good three times where this business really got nailed. And it came back every time, and it just gave me a lot more confidence when... The share price is down from 17.5 to $2. Uh, and then all of a sudden you've got some balance sheet issues that weren't there when you initially um, recommended the stock. Now all of a sudden you start to question everything and what's going, what's really going on here. But it was just that, I'd always had that in the back of my mind that there's something about what it sells, these poker machines that they're, one, very good at having the market's best games uh, or machines, and, and two, it's just been very cyclical and also it's been through some um, very bad management decisions. I think there was... Back in the day, $300 million contract was lost in South America where they delivered the poker machines and uh, the South Americans just decided not to pay them. <laughs> um, so some really difficult situations, but every time the company picked itself up. So I want to see a business that can endure because uh, this gives me a lot more confidence. And, and then I just want to see that there's, uh, you know, what's the growth case for the business and is this going to be a better business or a worse business? Yeah, so, I mean, he asked for financial metrics and I, I guess ultimately you'll see it in return on capital. Um, but I think it's a mistake to go and filter for return on capital and then you know hope to find quality businesses because that will lead you astray. You know there'll be cyclical businesses that are performing well at the top of a cycle, um, which don't have sustainable returns from that point, or you know businesses just experiencing other quirks or short-term um, purple patches. Um, so I think you need to take this step back and actually drill into the mechanics of the company um, and ultimately I think you're right it starts with product you know they have to provide a great product or service they have to look after their staff and you know have a good culture and everything else um, but I think ultimately they need to have a competitive advantage that's probably the first point so for me that's always the first thing I look at I've actually got a little acronym here um, haven't trademarked it yet so don't don't steal it but case is, is something that I use so competitive advantage first then alignment, so you want you know the managers of the business to be aligned with the shareholders, um, typically through stock ownership. Um, the next is scalability, so you want the business to have the, the potential to be bigger in time, and ultimately it's execution. Um, so yeah, I guess the metric is return on capital eventually. Um, um, that's something that I don't use a lot of, um, 
probably more so because I'm looking at smaller companies. Um, and so they might be really strong on those factors, but that isn't evident in their returns just yet. Um, I can use Ordinate as an example. Um, here, it's got a really strong competitive moat, um, but you don't see that yet because it's not ultimately at scale. Um, but you do see that in the unit economics. So when they sell one chip, they get a you know about a seventy percent return on on that one ch one chip that's embedded in a product. Um, once they've convinced Yamaha and other people like that to use these chips, they don't have to spend any more money to acquire um, them again, and they don't have to spend any marketing to get Yamaha to use them in future products. So so after that thirty percent cost to produce the chip, which results in that seventy percent gross margin. There's all, almost no other cost apart from the operating costs, you know, the, the head office and things. So, so fantastic unit economics. It's not ultimately at scale, but when it is, it's going to have a stupidly high return on capital. Yeah, for me, most of the time, I'm investing in the number one or two in their industry. And usually they've got some dominant competitive advantage. And if you look at the volatility for even those companies that are the number one or two in their industries, um, over time, like it's, it's huge. You get great opportunities in them, but also mistakes can be quite painful. So once you start getting away from that into more mediocre businesses, uh, you know, you're asking for a tough time of it anyway, and it's just a tough way to make money. But I think there, one of the important points there is when you start out, you, you sort of glue yourself to a lot of statistical numbers. And because you, you don't know a lot, you don't have a lot of experience at looking at businesses. And so you tend to hide behind those metrics or use them as a bit of a crutch. And, and eventually over time, what you should be as an experienced investor is think, you know, really throwing those metrics away and thinking about what is this business? If I was running the business, what decisions would I be making? You know, am I going to be a better business in the future or is competition coming? Uh, but one important point I, I do think that you, you do need to consider is uh, Charlie Munger made the point that if you buy a business with a 6% return on equity, if you hold that over long term, and even if you pay a dirt cheap price for it, it's really hard to get a, anything other than the 6% return for that stock. And ditto for the company that makes 20% return on equity. If you own that long enough, then the return should be around that 20% mark. But the question is, is that return on equity sustainable and for how long? And that's really what you're trying to come back to. And, and then it's a question of price. Yeah, great question though. So a quick one um, from Mitch said, my, from my current Carlton draft lead, and Alex can't answer this, but you're going to have to, is what is the name of the New Zealand men's basketball team? I thought it had something to do with the ferns or the silver ferns, but am I even on it close? You are. I mean, every team in New Zealand references the All Blacks. It's built on um, those two words. And then um, the silver ferns, which is the New Zealand women's netball team. Um, so in basketball, it's the tall blacks. Ah. Course. I'm glad he didn't ask about the badminton team. That's, that would be a very touchy <laughs> question. I won't, right. I won't elaborate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, I was going to talk about Woolworths, but I'll, I'll do that quickly next week. But uh, the last question was from Kathy. She said, in our last podcast, we talked about how 70% of all companies that make acquisitions lose value. Um, can you actually provide any information on that? Uh, just go to Google and just type in uh, research on acquisitions and I'm sure you'll get heaps and heaps of pages that come up. Uh, and that was always the rule that I've read in the past. I haven't read anything for a while, but 70% of all acquisitions do fail. Um, the ones that tend to work are the ones that are uh, opportunistic and usually during a downturn when people just pay the right price for these businesses. Uh, but also I'm sure there must be some sort of uh, consistency between owner-led businesses making acquisitions and versus what I call corporate career CEOs making acquisitions. 
Uh, I'm sure there must be a huge difference in that, but I don't have any evidence to back that up. Yeah, and I, I think also the cost structure is important as well. So if a business has lots of fixed costs, when you put those two businesses together, um, there are efficiencies there, so those tend to be better um, acquisition targets. So if, if the variable costs are high, um, there's a higher chance that it's going to end badly. Oh, it's great to have you back, Alex. Uh, thanks for uh, answering all those questions. There's a, there's a ton of them. Um, next week, we're actually going to focus on some stocks that you've been looking at. Uh, but please, people, uh, still send in your questions, but we'll deal with them in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, as always, you can send those questions to skininthegame at investmart.com.au. And thanks for listening. To learn more about the income, growth, and small companies funds, head over to investmart.com.au. Relevant disclosure documents should be read before making any investment decisions. And if you have any questions you'd like answered by our team, send us an email at skininthegame at investmart.com.au.